And welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Wednesday morning to you out there in the RadioNext.tv listening land. We are live on the Cool Groove site, Dr. Mark Echo, Harold H.V. Bell, every Wednesday, intertwining the wisdom and knowledge here on Warp and Wolf Radio. Sponsored by Comenius Institute, Dr. Mark, how are you today, my brother? Doing really well. Got a couple of promos here this morning. Got a shout out to uh, my brothers, uh, Mark Boone and Kevin Neese, and their editorial work on science fiction and the abolition of man. I contributed a chapter, chapter two to that uh, particular book, uh, Finding C.S. Lewis in Sci-Fi Film and Television. So go find that on Amazon, Science Fiction and the Abolition of Man. And a shout also out to Christ Missionary Baptist Church this Saturday. They will have their unconference, and we're going to find out about urban servanthood leadership in the urban community in Indianapolis starts at 8 a.m. Look it up at Christ Missionary Baptist Church. Check it out on Facebook, their announcement there. Pastor G is out there doing great things in the community. And what we're going to do, we've got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the history of the church up yeah. in here. Uh, and we know you are a history buff, Mark, and uh, this is going to be a special show, I'm sure, for you. Uh, as we do each and every week before we start Warping Wolf Radio, we uh, marinate your mind with a you know, nice little musical interlude. So we're going to take a song or two, and when we come back, we're going to introduce you to History of the Church. And today, uh, we've got a special guest in studio who is a, a history buff. Uh, Rob Wingerter is going to come in. He's got a very, very interesting book, Stones in the Stream, that we're going to talk about in our second hour. So you go tell somebody to tell somebody. Warp and Wolf Radio, getting ready to stir it up on RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groups. And we are back. Dr. Mark Echo, Harold H.B. Bell, Comedians Institute-sponsored program, Warp and Wolf Radio, as we always try to connect and intertwine wisdom and knowledge yes sir uh proverbs is the piece that we come from and let's get them going mark before we get going every uh wednesday morning what we like the audience to know is about a little bit about Comenius, what Comenius stands for uh letting them understand this show is totally driven from the book of proverbs and sure. how to live how to combine the wisdom and knowledge that we need to uh, transfer through this walk we call life. So, there you go. Uh, give That's it up, it. man. Yeah, so Comenius. John Amos Comenius, very famous Moravian pastor uh, from the 16th century. He was the guy who actually believed that women should be educated. He believed that people learned in lots of different ways. All kinds of good things I could tell you about Comenius. But bottom line is Comenius Institute is committed to spending time with Christian young people at public universities such as IUPUI. We had a great time this last Monday. Uh, spent about a couple hours down there. Had a great talk uh, with a number of uh, students down there. Nathaniel and I kind of closed things out for the last hour talking about can you make math out of nothing? Boy, that'll make your mind spin right there. So yeah, we do uh, all kinds of great stuff with uh, students. Uh, we go to conferences, interact with culture, uh, like I suggested in the promo, we're going to be down at the Unconference uh, down at Christ ba Missionary Baptist Church, uh, Pastor Girton down there, uh, learning about urban leadership and a different kind of context. All those kinds of things are going to be important for us. But Warp and Woof, the vertical horizontal threads that make up fabric, how all things fit together under Christ's Lordship. Well, that was a great 60-second commercial there about Comenius. <laughs> but no, actually, uh, what we try to do each and every week is just give you some things to think about, um, uh, more so than just fact, 
more than just history, we try to say, okay, how do we take these two elements of the wisdom and the knowledge that we um, dish out each and every Wednesday and, and maybe connect those things That's right. as you go through your walk. Today we're talking about church history. As we mentioned today, Rob Wingerter, uh, the Massey Center. Or did I say Massey. Massey. And Massey means what, uh, translator? Massey, yeah. He, it's Hebrew, actually, and it should be pronounced Maksa. You kind of spit in the back oh, of your yeah, throat boy, there. You're talking know. about phonemic awareness. <laughs> <laughs> little Hebrew going on. Yeah. Maksa literally means a shelter or a refuge. And so that's what Masse Center is. It provides a shelter and refuge for those who want to do rest and study together. Well, what, great. We're going to meet him right at the 11 o'clock hour. But right now we're going to talk about church history. And uh, a couple of questions to start out, I guess the most relevant would be, uh, why is history important and why is it important to study the past? Yeah. So uh, I think I've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the twin problems of history that we're too far away from the past to actually study it very well because we don't really fully comprehend or understand all the ramifications of culture and history and transportation and all kinds of familial stuff going on. And then we're too close to our own present time. So just a couple of examples of this. I remember uh, when uh, George W. was president uh, and the historians uh, automatically decided that he was the worst president ever. And it doesn't matter what you think about George W., but hear me on this. I, I was talking to the historian saying, you guys study a history. This is present time. Why don't you wait a while uh, to check things out after a bit? And then Barbara Tuchman, the brilliant American historian, wrote this. To understand the choices open to people of another time, one must limit themselves to what they knew, see the past in its own clothes, as it were, not in our own. We have a tendency to take ourselves, impose it on the past, and say, well, this is the way things must have been. Another thing that's really important about history, and specifically this year, this is the 500th year celebration of the Reformation, when Martin Luther pounded his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg door. Uh, we got guys like Calvin and Zwingli and Tyndall. Uh, these folks are really important uh, individuals in Christian history. And then, of course, we've got those who want to kind of poo-poo it all, like the folks over in England. The Archbishop of Canterbury, for instance, says that Christians ought to repent for the Reformation split. And we could go into long detail about that. Quite frankly, I think that's rather garbage. But nonetheless, the bottom line is we need to study history. It's important to understand our present. Yeah, I mean, how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? And it's <laughs> yeah. said, and I mean, it's cliche, but it's, it's absolute truth. So uh, why should we study people who have uh, preceded us in human history? Yeah, so this goes to something you and I have talked about this rather consistently on this show, and that's the issue of legacy. It's not what you leave behind, it's who you leave behind. And we could talk about all different kinds of legacies that we all bear in one way or another. I think it's really important. But let me jump to one that I think is really important for me. And uh, this is the legacy that my grandfather left me. This is my uh, grandfather on my mom's side. Uh, so this was a man who uh, was very congenial, very good man, uh, with lots, left me with lots of great memories. He taught me how to eat Nabisco shredded wheat, man. It was really cool. I drink from a huge coffee cup every single morning because of my grandfather. Uh, I learned how to uh, handle weapons because of my grandfather. He, was, uh, uh, he used to blue weapons, that is, bring them back to their original pristine position. I uh, remember my grandfather's basement, his garage, all kinds of things, uh, his smile on his face, all these things that I can remember. Uh, I used to bring my kids there uh, at least once a year to stop by and say hello to Grandma and Grandpa. 
whenever we're talking about uh, passing on family generational conversations and wisdom and history, we need to look back at the immediate people in our families and say, what have they given to us? What have we learned from them? How can we appreciate them? How can we literally give a shout back to history and say, we're not going to forget this. We're going to tell future generations of how we grew up. And before I get to this last question, you know, I always like to just start thinking as we're yeah. doing the Q&A. Um, and I was thinking um, as a as a gentleman who's had a fractured uh I guess reflection of history would be the best way to put it. You know, I, I don't have a lot of carryover from uh, the bloodlines of the Bell family. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens, uh, you think, when that when that is is that a chance to start a new frontier in the history telling process, or mm -hmm. do we try to reach back before that person where we don't have that connection of history and try to find out what happened before that? Sure, I think both. So on the one side, you have folks who are trying to find their birth parents, for instance. Just for instance, uh, they go and try, they've been adopted, and then when they reach 18, 21, whatever, they try to reach back and say, you know, where did I come from? This is really important. So history is still important, but you're also right, that is that you pick up where, where you are. And so you don't, you don't think about the past in terms of all the negatives. You think about, okay, I'm here now. Now what am I going to do with this thing? Absolutely. And our last question pretty much goes there. Tell us why Proverbs places such a premium on the wisdom of past generations. Sure. So Proverbs, uh, don't forget, was written to young people, uh, literally to next generation leadership. Over and over and over again, you'll see the words uh, sons. And this uh, word sons in Hebrew has a broad meaning. It means a biological sonship, but it also can mean a sociological sonship. So this past week, I had a, a student of mine. He's 40 now, but he uh, referenced something in relationship to how parents ought to ask their students or their children questions. And he wrote on Facebook, he said, uh, you might not be our biological parent, but you have been our social and our political and our historical and our spiritual parent for so many years. And so that's the kind of thing, providing moral guidance for young people. And he viewed me in that way. And I think that's really kind of important uh, concept. So when we talk about Proverbs, we're talking about this is a book written to young people, next generation leadership, and then the question folks like you and I have to ask HB is, okay, what's my responsibility in front of all those folks so that I might not only set a good example and then model it, but how am I going to help them to understand the past and history in order to bring that forward for their kids in the future? Get ready to go on break. I mean, this, this, is a great, this is a great subject matter because I think when we think in terms of history, a lot of times we're trying to impart wisdom, but are we also trying to uh, uh, decorate our past? Oh, definitely. Okay. Yeah, that happens. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, desire accomplished your sweet to the soul. We'll be right back. <laughs> you are listening to Warp and Wolf Radio here on the Cool Groove Sighted Radio Next. RadioNext.tv, and we are back. Warp and Wolf Radio, man. We Those were songs for history, as a matter of fact, <laughs> Dr. Mark, Stevie Wonder, and Quincy Jones. Nice. Legends. Nice. Legends in the music world. Uh, we are here right now, Dr. Mark Echo, Harold H.B. Bell, and we are talking about the history of the church, which is a very, very interesting uh, topic today. I mean, this can take your mind all over the place because when we talk about the church, um, we're talking about several different fractions of religions who have mm. kind of uh, gone and made their own staple in their faith and belief mm. and what's prioritized in their faiths mm. and beliefs. And, and it's interesting. So when we start talking about history, 
the second segment, we always talk about current events. Um, so why do you say that history is the most uh, important subject in school, Marcus? You know, I'd beg to differ with that language <laughs> arts piece of mine. But no, just would. go ahead. Why sure, is history yeah. more important? Well, I'll, t- I'll read you this story. This is something I wrote some time ago. It was the late, uh, the last day of school, May 1984. Mr. Melhoff, who was at that time my administrator, gave me $20 at the end of school. He knew that my family and I were on our way south and east to visit both sets of parents. We lived then, of course, in Bismarck, North Dakota. I remember as if it were yesterday his exact words, here is $20 to help you with gas on the trip back. He said, you see, I had just finished my initial year of teaching at this Christian school in Bismarck, North Dakota. It had been a rough year. Uh, Mr. Melhoff knew it, and that $20 brought me back to North Dakota. It brought me back to Christian school education, and it brought, taught me that only looking back do we look ahead. So I tell audiences all the time, history is the most important subject in any school, and I can tell you lots of reasons why that might be, but not the least of which would be the idea that feasts, stone monuments, tassels on the hem, hems of garments, tabletops and repositories for scripture wrapped around one's forehead or forearm were all active reminders of past events. This was how the Old Testament people lived, and so we need to look back so that we might look ahead. Well, you know, and it's so funny, uh, both of us are in education, different fractions, of course, um, but the young people, are, you know, we have to go back, and I guess our way of teaching history is, I remember when, <laughs> you know, that, that's what starts out first, boy, when, back when I was, mm. and, and, and it seems to annoy mm. A lot of times the young people, mm. because they live in a here and now society. Yeah. Everything is like rapid, instant, and fast. Yeah. Uh, so since we live in a here and now, uh, shouldn't we think about what's next? That's what they asked me, Mr. <laughs> HB. Shouldn't we think about what's ahead instead of what's in the past? Yeah. How would you answer that? So I find this kind of comment in young people all the time. So I was talking with a teenager once who sarcastically said to me, why should I study history? What's it got to do with me? And my answer was 42 chromosomes. (laughs) Since he didn't know what that was, I brought it down to his level because he had this big quizzical look on his face. I said, your mom and dad had sex. He still looked a bit dazed, so I added, the reason you are who you are is because your dad added 21 and your mom added 21, which makes 42 chromosomes, which means that's what makes you up as a human being. So don't talk to me about history had nothing to do with you because history got you here, baby. That's huge. So, by the way, HP, next time you run into that question, there you go. Your mom and dad had sex, that's, man. That's that's a, a, but that is intellectual <laughs> rapping, brother. I mean, you, you went straight there. Hey, man. we go right down, put the cookies in the bottom shelf. Yes, so sir. you know, you, you and I both know this. We had some impressive young folks on this program this summer, Okara, Sammy, Tucker, Adeline, interning at Harrison Center for the Arts. Discussion this week with Nathaniel Cantwell. We had some young people from Cominius in here uh, from IUPUI. Uh, Students who are studying the past to understand the present. These young people are going out doing great things down at Harrison Center, down at IUPUI, and every single one of them knows the truth, that in order to get to the future, they got to know the past. That leads us to the last question of this segment. as Christians, mm. why do we have a responsibility and why do we bear a responsibility uh, to learn and teach history to sure. 
those coming up. So uh, my website, for those of you who are not, uh, haven't heard this before, it's warpandwoof.org. That's W-A-R-P-A-N-D-W-O-O-F.org. And, and before we go forward, please, yeah. you know, because I had a friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine, and I don't know, you know, when you sip cocktails, sometimes the funny comes out. Okay. Too. So right. Warp and Wolf, they, I mean, we they had about a 15-minute joke about Warp Okay. And warp and Woof is the vertical horizontal threads that make up fabric. And we're all warping and woofing because we all got fabric on because we're all wearing clothes. So the idea of this is that Colossians 1.17, by him are all things held together. Jesus is the one who holds the world together. So what I want to say about warp and woof is simply if you go to my website, uh, there's a search line right toward the top. Just type in history and hit the Q button and just see how many things pop up because I talk about history all the time. So five basic ideas here. Number one. All of Christianity rises and falls on history. If you don't have a real person in space and time, his name was Jesus, died physically on the cross, rose historically from the dead, dead, we got nada, baby. You might as well get up and walk away. Number two, ethics. Where we've come from and where we're going to teaches us how to know, live, how to know how to live now. That's huge, so history bears on ethics. Number three, understanding others, how they think, live, believe, is an act of love and honor, an act of love and honor, understanding others. Number four, heritage. February is Black History Month. You will see me posting weekly on Black Voices Matter. This month I posted on Dr. King. Next week I'm going to, or next month I'm going to be talking about folks like Thomas Sowell, great black intellectual, uh, all kinds of great folks. Heritage is important to understand history. And number five, the future, the application of past principles from what happened into what's next, that's what we're all about, man. Uh, two things. Yes. I got black history loaded up in this music box. Mr. All right. Al Green coming up oh. next. I know you. I know, know Al Green. Uh, and least. secondly, when I told them what Warp and Wolf meant, <laughs> guess what happened? We need to go get another drink after oh, that. Because I blew that. No, I blew that mind when I started talking about the intellectual horizontal uh, interweave. Oh, they went straight <laughs> off and said, "Let me have another." We'll be right back. You are listening to Dr. Mark Eckle, Harold H. B. Bell, Comedians Institute presents Warp and Wolf Radio, and we are back. And that is why you are listening today, Dr. Mark <laughs> Eckle, Harold H. B. Bell, Comedians Institute sponsors Warp and Wolf Radio every Wednesday. 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we intertwine wisdom and knowledge. And uh, we are having a candid conversation today uh, about the history of the church. And uh, you know, I first saw this topic matter, and I was saying, how is Mark going to just really draw interest <laughs> about history of the church? But I am so just, I mean, you know, I have so many questions going mm-hmm. because uh, you start to think about the church, and the church is the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the history of us, basically. That's right. Um, and so as we go into this third segment, and we always like to do, we, we like to keep the community engaged. And uh, we do want to welcome in studio right now our special guest today, Rob Wingeter. He will be with us on the second part of the Warp and Wolf radio show this morning. And uh, he's going to expand a little bit more on it, uh, on this subject matter. And we also want to introduce his book, Stones in the Stream, uh, who Dr. Mark Echo uh, did you contribute on that book, sir? No, not at all. Okay, not I didn't know. You know, you're all you're all over the place <laughs> with you with your contributions and your writings. But uh, this third segment of the first hour, Mark, what Christian organizations around Indianapolis care about, study, and teach history? Well, you and I were at one uh, this August. Uh, Absolutely, the, the school that opened the city attics. That wonderful documentary. Wow. That was some really good stuff. You know, you talk about history. I think some of the most powerful stuff. 
uh, can when we put the verbal and the visual together is really a great thing. Of course, we had Hank Hankerson up in here. We had Legends of Jazz. Uh, we went to I went down to see him play and some of the some of the old folks that were uh, back in the day that can still play and it was really wonderful. That's just a piece of history in Indianapolis. We've got something called the Liberty Fund here in Indianapolis. This is probably one of the best kept secrets of Indianapolis. I've been there a few times just to study and read and think. Uh, LibertyFund.org. They do all kinds of great uh, publishing about great history books and history texts from the past. We've got societies here in Indianapolis, uh, things like the Philanthropic Society, for instance. Or we have things like the Lilly Endowment. I actually just wrote a piece on this uh, that actually is in a, uh, an encyclopedia uh, that's, that's actually out right now. And then one other uh, piece that I'd like to suggest is uh, this idea of the Indiana Historic Society. If you want to go to indianahistory.org, uh, you're going to be introduced to all different kinds of history. And HB, i got to tell you this, that uh, Indy's premier bourbon affair is going to be on February 17th, man. It's going to be great. This is a history of bourbon. I'm just I'm reading off the screen. That's all I'm doing right here, right now. Just reading off the screen, indianahistory.org, some great things going on. But quite frankly, if I'm going to talk to Christians about the past, and I'm going to talk to young people who I'm talking to all the time, I tell them, go ask your parents, go ask your grandparents to tell you a story. You, you know, and it's amazing, this next question that we have, uh, um, we have children's museums, as you mentioned, Idle George Museum. You know, we have all these museums about history, and it just, you know, it just dawned on me. You know, where is where is just a good old like history of Christian museum? You know, I yeah. mean, where where is that located? Yeah. But I guess that kind of leads to this, like, you know, this next question: uh, Where would Christians begin to study history? Uh, you know, the generality of the church and history and, you know, specifically, yeah, where, sure. would, where will we go? Well, let me start by saying this. Whenever I teach leadership courses, and I just was teaching one down at Boca uh, this last week, I always require a history book as part of the curriculum. Uh, so here's just a, one of the famous Christian historians. His name was Owen Chadwick. That's Owen Chadwick. Uh, he died a couple of years ago at 99, actually. And this is what uh, was said about Owen Chadwick as a Christian historian. He was never embarrassed as a historian by his Christian commitments. In the first place, it would have been absurd to deny them. In the second place, they made him a better historian. And in the third place, he knew that faith and uh, reason were not enemies. He also understood Christianity itself as inescapably historical. A religion, as he said in his Hensley Henschen uh, lectures, in which history matters. So let me tell you about some other historians. Another one would be uh, George Marsden, actually in the one of the last issues of Books and Culture. Uh, there was a great article there called The Historian's Historian. George Marsden would be uh, somebody that I would point to. Uh, another uh, very important issue here, I think, is to uh, point out to people that there's something called the ChristianHistoryInstitute.org. I get their magazine. In fact, I've been getting their magazine since the beginning, and there are, are 120 of these, HB. 120 magazines. I've been getting them since I was teaching high school. ChristianHistoryInstitute.org, very important and a prominent uh, group of folks. And then I want to uh, give a shout-out to one book. If I was going to cho choose one church history book that kind of covers all of church history, I would choose Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. And uh, he used to teach at Denver Seminary. It's in its fourth edition. 
talk about putting the cookies in the bottom shelf, but giving you a broad understanding of Christian history. That's Bruce Shelley, Church History in Plain Language. And I, I wish that we would really expose more um, on this subject matter. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it's just amazing when you start looking at oh, yeah. church history and, and how little we expose it, but how rich it is in the fabric of our, of That's our right. society today. Right. Um, last question is third segment. Um, and this is your, you, you, you laugh every time we get here, but you, you are the movie buff, the documentary buff. Um, and, and, I mean, really, that, that's the way you teach yeah. and connect. Uh, what, uh, what movies or documentaries do you think would get Christians interested in studying the history? Sure. Of, so of the I'm going to stay in one place. Uh, for those of you who get Amazon Prime, and if you don't get Amazon Prime, run right now to your Internet site and go get Amazon Prime. Uh, for $100 a month, not only can you watch all kinds of stuff for free, but you get free shipping, and it's really cool on books and anything you order there. So I just want to stay on one page. Uh, I dialed into a very important uh, documentary series that I actually showed to my high school students back in the day uh, called How Should We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was the man who probably more than anybody else formed my thinking when I was a teenager. And in his documentary series, a 10-part series, by the way, there are t uh, 10, 25-minute uh, pieces in this that would expose any Christian to a good, broad overview of Christian history. Now, if you go to that page, if you go to Amazon Prime, you find How Should We Then Live? Go down to the bottom of the page, just scroll down, and you see the place that says, Customers Who Watched This Item Also Watched. There is a treasure trove of documentaries and movies about Christian history on Amazon Prime you can watch for free. So, here's just a few. Ancient Roads from Christ to Constantine is a very, very fine uh, documentary series. Uh, the Shortest Way Home, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. There's all kinds of great stuff in here about uh, Martin Luther, Zwingli and Calvin, Wesley, Augustine, Tyndall, Knox, Wesley, all kinds of uh, very important folks uh, that we could go on and on about. One last one I'll mention is, of course, the famous John Bunyan uh, called the, Pe the People's Pilgrim, somebody who wrote a very important book that probably is only second to the Bible in terms of its printing, and that's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I highly recommend Amazon Prime and all that you can find there in terms of muse, uh, movies and documentaries for Christian history. Talk about a whole curriculum right at your fingertips. Well, I mean, this has been amazing. Uh, uh, the history of the church, uh, everyone's a part of it, and uh, I think we just need to know more. Uh, when we come back at the top of the 11 o'clock hour, uh, our special guest, Rob Ringeter, is in the house. Uh, we're going to take one cut. And speaking of history, this is Indianapolis's own George Middleton uh, and one of his great jazz cuts, uh, Gone Fishing. You're going to enjoy nice. this. Okay. One. Check this out. We'll be right back. Warp and Wolf Radio on RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. We are back, RadioNext.tv at the Cool Groove site. This is Warp and Woof Radio. You hear us every Wednesday morning from 10 till noon, and we engage all different kinds of topics from a wisdom perspective, that is biblical wisdom out of the book of Proverbs, and we engage all kinds of disciplines and topics and subjects. And this week we are talking about the church in history, or Christian history in particular, and our emphasis is always the same, and that is that History is something that uh, is the basis for not only what we experience now, 
but how we ought to think about living in the future. So this particular week, we have a, a great guest. Rob Wingeter is here from Massey Center. Uh, he's just written a brand new book called Stones in the Stream, an overview of the flow of Christian history examined through the lives of 22 men and women that altered its course. Rob, welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself, your family, your church, your life experiences, and what kind of work you do in Indianapolis. Mark, thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, yeah, I probably have a little non-traditional background for an individual that would write a book like this. Uh, from a technical training perspective, I was a, a lawyer, I am a lawyer, and a CPA, and I spent the first 36 years of my work life all with one firm. I kind of modeled a consistency. That was Ernst & Young, which is one of the large, uh, what they call big four accounting firms. So you kind of sit there and say, why would somebody with that background have an interest in this? But uh, I've always viewed myself as kind of a lifelong learner. Um, and we can talk more about that. We talk about the book. Family-wise, uh, large and growing, four adult <laughs> children, uh, 12 grandchildren, a 13th due in August, and I don't think they're done. So <laughs> that's I, uh, great. I'm, that's a pretty exciting part of my life right it now. Is. Since I retired from Ernst & Young, I do a variety of things. I teach at Purdue, not in church history, but in fact in a business class at the graduate school. Uh, you mentioned uh, a big part of my life is we run the Masse Center along with my brother and sister-in-law. I'd say a 14-bedroom retreat center up in a lake in northern Indiana. It's uh, We purchased it 10 years ago. It's just started about its eighth year of operation and, and doing well. We're pretty much booked for the whole year, on weekends anyway. Uh, that's a very big part of my life. And then I do a few other things uh, to pay the bills. I sit on the board of a couple for-profit companies, and I'm the treasurer and VP for a foundation in town called the Regan Street Foundation that uh, funds medical research. Mm. So all those together, and the grandkids in particular, keep me pretty busy. Mm. So. Let's talk about grandkids just for a second, mostly because, you know, we both have them, and that's kind of important to us. Um, when you think about history and you think about your own grandchildren, how do you make that kind of connection? We're talking about Christian history, church history, but you've got 13 uh, grandchildren. How do you think about history differently or the same or in any way uh, that, that might help other people with grandchildren think through history? Well, if you made this point in the first hour, I think people tend to underestimate how much they're influenced by history. I, I think everybody's got this feeling that history is this upward projection and why would you ever want to look backward? Um, I've tried to instill in all my kids and my grandkids mm -hmm. a love of history. Part of it is because of the lessons that can be learned. Um, you know, those that ignore the history of the past, the old saying, they're going to make continue to make the, the ongoing problems. Mm -hmm. um, not always successful, but I, one way I wanted to leave a legacy, quite honestly, for my grandkids is, is and for my children is uh, writing books like this and mm -hmm. other topics that I want to pass on to them. I mean, that's uh, certainly a, a motivation for me. So um, I take my kids to museums, and I talk to them about history and how it's influenced. I give them some appreciation that they're not isolated, that you know, the 21st century is not the century, mm. uh, how things have been influenced. Uh, I, some, some of my kids adapt pretty readily. Others, like my daughter, her first glance was, Dad, I don't really care what happened a month ago, much less 2,000 years ago. <laughs> but uh, I've made a, I think I've made some, some headway there. Yes, so. yeah. And she's actually a teacher. Too, she, right? she is a teacher, second yeah. grade teacher, and the mother. She will be the mother of eight when she has this next child. So she's got wow. her hands pretty full too. So. Wow! But yeah, yeah. You when you think about having somebody's plate full, that's you know that kind of cements it for me. Eight <laughs> children. That's that's pretty impressive. She's a trooper, and and she does a lot of uh, sponsoring 
distressed mm. youth on weekends and that wow. kind of stuff. So that's impressive. I, my hats are off to her. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, you've you mentioned that you've passed a lot along some of your uh, thoughts and teachings about these kinds of things uh, through the experiences that you've given your children and those kinds of things. Uh, would you say that the church does uh, a good job of this? Do we do a good job of passing this on? Uh, if we don't, is there a way that we could do this better? Uh, my re- quick reaction, and I, it's a studied reaction, is I don't think we do a very good job. I, I've um, This is dating me a little bit. Uh, Peanuts, uh, Charles Schultz, this goes back to sometime in the early 70s, had a little strip, three, three columns, three boxes. The first strip is Linus. Lucy is sitting with Linus, and she's got a pen and paper out. She says, I have to write a history of the church. And the second column is, I think I should start right at the beginning. And the third little box said, my pastor was born in 1923. <laughs> so it, it, it's about as far as most people have an appreciation of, of church mm-hmm. history is, you know, how long has my church been around? How long has been my pastor? Yeah. Yet there is this rich and deep um, heritage. Um, it's an interesting time. Uh, you know, maybe you should talk again in October when it comes up on the 500th anniversary mm-hmm. of the Reformation, which is being recognized. But, you know, we were a common church up to that point in time. So you think over the 2,000-year history of the church, the first 1,500 years, um, we were a common heritage. And you would think you'd want to know something about that heritage, but, uh, again, coming from a Protestant denomination, very few people do or care. I mean, mm-hmm. it, if anything, it starts with the Reformation and goes forward. Very few people can tell you anything about the early and medieval church. Right. And I think that's a real shame because a lot of principles were established there. The, we, we talk about in history, you know, if somebody had made a mistake, if God hadn't put the right person in the right place mm-hmm. at the right time, uh, take an Athanasius, if he hadn't been there in the Council of Nicaea and an Arianism had been, you know, a, a fallacy had been pointed off, the church could have been, a, you know, a one inch off, so to speak. It's like the shooting a gun. If you're one inch off, uh, here you're you know you're 500 yards off or 550 <laughs> yards off or whatever 500 yards sure. 500 years out so yeah. we've got a real heritage that should be protected and we should be acknowledged by by everybody and that's one of the big purposes for this book sure well when you have a book like let's just take the book of Luke for instance just off the top of my head the very first four verses are based on history Luke writes mm-hmm. his his book to a Greek audience and the Greeks knew history they knew the importance of it. And his first four verses say, yeah, I want to make sure that you all know that I went back to the eyewitnesses to check this stuff out, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. These are important ideas, even within Scripture. So when you think about this, you're thinking about uh, writing about the great names of church history. Then how do you connect church history to biblical history and the segues maybe like a book of Luke might make for us? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's clearly... If if an historian isn't following biblical principles, he's not a Christian historian. I mean, he may be an historian, but he's certainly not emphasizing the Christian faith. So um, there's obviously the the theology that they're supporting is in the Bible, biblical theology, and therefore you look for those historians that were, that was the nature of the book. I was trying to find individuals, um, what I call the large stones, we'll talk about the title, but the large stones in the stream that I had to get into the book first, like getting the big stones in the jar, that were critical because they were the ones that ensured that the the heritage of the church was biblically based. And so that the connection obviously is there. They didn't create anything. They were preserving something. They were preserving the faith. um, And obviously it's gotten way off in certain directions and had to be brought back in. 
Uh, obviously, the Reformation was a result of, of a point in time with the Catholic Church where they were so far removed from biblical principles and justification by faith alone that, that Martin Luther felt the need to, to lead a semi-rebellion. Mm. So there's a high overlap, but it's all driven by biblical theology first and key individuals supporting that and trying to keep society in the mainstream. Mm. So Yeah. Well, since you mentioned the title of your book, um, it's interesting. This is an interesting title, Stones in the Stream. We have a tendency uh, to choose metaphors uh, that kind of give a picture, a visual picture of whatever it is we're trying to explain to somebody. I'm sure you do this when you're explaining taxes, too. You mm-hmm. give people pictures of something. Uh, but in this particular case, the title of your book, you entitled Stones in the Stream. Uh, give us a background to this, why this was important to you, and what made you choose that title. Yeah, um, when I've studied history, I, I think there's a perception that history is kind of this long, lazy river that just kind of winds its way back and forth. But if you think about it, it's maybe more like a pinball machine in one sense, <laughs> because uh, history bounces off people. I mean, I, in the case of Christian history, I believe there are people God placed in a particular point to address and accomplish something that he wanted accomplished. But people can have this single individual people can have a significant impact. They can shift this, the uh, direction. Much like, you know, stones, the concept was the river of history, so to speak, or the flow of history are bouncing off stones. If it's a large stone, it could divert the stream. If it's a small stone, it, you know, they may accumulate, like a populace may accumulate, and they can have the same impact to redirect the direction of a river and to shift it. So it just seemed to me to be a good, good visual. A, a lot of people talk about time and history and and that being a um, you know something to visualize how history might flow so it was just a natural extension to think about people as the stones that resisted history or redirected history Mm. it's interesting you know you talked about the metaphor and and quite frankly i would love to have uh, seen a pinball machine on the front of cover of this you know (laughs) that would have been a lot of fun the cover picture was a lot easier to pick out with stones (laughs) in the stream so yeah i'm sure it was sorry you mentioned pinball i just couldn't help but go there well hey what just before we go to the break here um Tell us a little bit about how in the world does a lawyer and a tax guy from Ernst & Young go back to school at Covenant Seminary to get another degree on top of all the stuff you're already doing? What's up with that? Yeah, well, it's probably a, a very personal and self-centered reason, which I think is, has a good motivation. Uh, um, you know, I, I really feel like if you're serious about your faith, you need to live it out. You need to have an understanding, be well-grounded in theology and apologetics and church history. And I found out that when I try to just do, try to just do that on my own, uh, just by, and I'm a pretty disciplined person, uh, I wasn't accomplishing what I thought I wanted to accomplish. And I thought, well, going back to seminary would give me structure. It gets you objectives, you've got timelines, you've got tests so you can take things seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got access to great teachers. So it was for a semi-selfish reason, but with a good intent. I wanted to round out my Christian history. And then again, I've been kind of a lifelong learner. I didn't have a particular objective when I got done with it, uh, although the Lord, um, and, you know, some of that history, Mark, we've talked offline about, is it did lead me into Marseille, which, which is a whole other story, mm-hmm. where I'm getting to use some of the experience in, that I've learned and certainly some of the technical um, theology and those type of things with discussions that I lead at the retreat center. So God provided me a ministry, uh, but it was motivated by wanting to uh, round out my 
Christian background and be faithful to the call to take your faith seriously. Yeah. Well, you know, certainly you've been a beneficiary of many people. Not only have you done Marseille, not only have you rounded out, as you suggest, uh, your background in church history, but you've led an awful lot of Bible studies in the past. I've been beneficiary of some of those. Well, continue to do that. I, I enjoy those things. So, yeah. so. so you have a group that still meets every couple weeks, is uh, it? Yes. Met last night, uh, okay. you know, about uh, on a good night when everybody shows up, about 20 of us, but typically 12, 14, yeah. 15 of us. Nice. So. Excellent. Well, this is great. It's a, you're a tremendous example for the rest of the church, uh, the kinds of things that we ought to be all committed to, not simply about uh, church history, but about how to educate the next generation of Christian young people. You are listening to Radio Next.TV at the Cool Groove site. This is Warp and Woof Radio. You hear us every Wednesday from 10 until noon. And this week we have the great privilege of having Rob Winger with us and talking about his book, Stones in the Stream. We will be right back. You're listening to Radio Next.TV at the Cool Groove site. This is Warp and Woof Radio. And in the studio today we have Rob Winger. We're talking about his book, Stones in the Stream, Discussing Church History. So, uh, Rob, just to kind of get everybody up to speed here, give a brief overview of the book, why you wrote it, and why you titled it the way you did, just kind of uh, bring everybody back up to speed. Uh, sure, Mark. The motivation for the book was I, I see this kind of gap among what I call the, pers- the, norm- the typical person in the pew who doesn't know or and maybe doesn't even really care or realize how much they're missing by not understanding at least the basic concepts and high water marks of what happened in church history. So a lot of my motivation was, uh, given my experience, to try to cr- craft something that was church history but was appealing and readable mm-hmm. by people that weren't necessarily scholarly oriented. And, and that's not meant to be derogatory. They're just some people that's not their motivation. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I, I, I jokingly one time told somebody, it's kind of like this is the People magazine uh, view of church history. Because <laughs> I, I think people <laughs> tend to think, okay, short, um, ch- chapters 10, 11, 12 pages in length. And, and where most scholarly history books are more focused on dates, uh, places, events, and then the people kind of get sprinkled in and you get these little nuggets of people. Mm. I thought, well, what if you reversed that paradigm and created something where the people that God used um, are um, at the focal of it and you learn an in-depth understanding of the person and then place that person in the time of history that they've been influenced by and are gonna be influencers of, either Mm. directly or maybe they're representative of a whole group of people that were involved in that. Mm. So I thought, well, at first that that would be more readable, which was my desire. Uh, To be totally honest, I'm not a historian by trade. I may have had plenty of church history and and seminary and stuff, but that's not my focus. And I thought that's probably going to be where my talent lies is more creating these short stories um, and trying to craft uh, where I talk about a big concept, but put it in pretty simple one or two page summary terms and then give a more in-depth analysis of the individual. Um, so that that was kind of the motivation to create this tool. And again, it, it comes out of, again, a personal motivation to uh, want to, to contribute to people's the renewal of the faith. And, and you know, the, the retreat center is one element of it, providing people the church history that is readable is another element mm-hmm. of it. So, yeah. All of that, it really strikes me as, as uh, tremendously important and powerful for uh, just folk who are Christians who need to know a little bit more about history. We talked in the first uh, segment about the river of history as stones. We kind of went through all of that. 
but I wanted to take that a little bit further and have you explain the difference between anybody's earthly contribution from heaven's and human's point of view. So we're talking about 22 different individuals. How do we view them from heaven's point of view and our point of view? Have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, when you poised this question to me as a, as a teaser earlier, I was thinking maybe the best way in my mind is, is use a personal illustration, which is uh, we've been friends for 35 years with a missionary couple that went to Papua New Guinea, and they were missionaries in the sense of real missionaries. They're in the jungle. They're reaching an unchurched tribe. They spent 30-plus years of their life in this one location, and at the conclusion of that, they they had you know done everything. I mean, translated the Bible, written it out, and started three churches kind of spread over this area in Papua New Guinea. And when we've talked with them, they think they probably have about 300 believers in those churches. And you think, that's pretty amazing, but nobody's ever going to hear of that guy. Mm-hmm. And then I think, and this isn't meant to be derogatory at all, but then I think, well, what about Captain Sully? He saved 300 people in a plane. And he's a hero, and Tom Hanks is playing him on a movie, and and he'll he's some, a semi-historical figure in that sense of of somebody that rescued three hundred people. Mm. Yet in God's kind of perception, what were the three hundred on the plane rescued from if none of them ever understand Christianity and mm. come to know Christ? Whereas the friends that I'm talking about, the, the Murrays, have you know laid the groundwork for 300 people for sure that can now impact everybody that's in their tribe. So from God's perspective, I would think that he's a little more excited from an historical perspective about what the Murrays accomplished than, again, a commendable thing that Captain Sully did, but you know, not that probably significant uh, in Christ's eyes. So when we talk about this, you know, you, you had mentioned earlier when I asked you a different kind of question about church history, we kind of talked about the biblical theology of this and why church history arises out of a biblical concept of history. Uh, so when we talk about a biblical history, we're talking about not simply human history. We're talking about all of eternal and providential history that God controls. So when you talk to people about church history or when you promote the book or when you talk about any of these individuals or have a discussion at Marseille, um, how much do you deal with uh, issues such as, let's say, the sovereignty of God or the providence of God and how that fits into the lives of individual people? Yeah, I mean, certainly God created us with a free will, but God's our free will won't thwart God's desire to have his will accomplished in this world. So, um, you know, I, I, if I could give you the succinct 20-second answer of how those two all work, I, I would be writing a big book on that because because <laughs> yeah, it, it's a little mind-boggling. It's one of those things I want to ask God how he can use my flawed personality that will occasionally let, you know, my own personal ambitions do something and then still somehow in the end I've accomplished what he's put me on this mm-hmm. earth to accomplish. Um I'm not really answering the question because I'm not sure how tough okay. it is to answer. Yeah. But but I, I can just say from personal experiences, I can look back in life and things that I thought were a mistake or I had no understanding why I had those circumstances or even little things at the time I didn't recognize the significance of them, mm-hmm. how they all came together to put me in a position to do what I think God had set forth before me and, mm-hmm. and impact the people, however limited that is, that I come in contact right. with. Yeah. So We talk about... Uh, well, two things. You know, since you mentioned you'd have to write a big book, absolutely. Um, when students ask me about the sovereignty or providence of God, I'll tell them that I can uh, tell them about it, but there's no way I could totally explain it to them. Yeah. Uh, there's no way that that's ever going to happen. 
but the other issue that we face is that, and something HB and I talk about all the time, and the reason why we have a radio show like this, bring in all these different folks from around Indy, is to say to everybody, hey, look, um, here are people that are doing good things in Indianapolis. Let's talk about them, what's happening right now in our time and place. And that's really what we're here for, is our time and our place. We bear responsibility for that, and that's, you know, a pretty big deal. So when you talk about time and place, um, you clearly have identified 22 different individuals who have shaped church history. So my question is, how do you think history shaped them in the reverse order? Yeah, I don't think any of the individuals, I don't think you name anybody in, in my book or anybody in history period that wasn't kind of a man of their times. I mean, there are women of their times. They're going to be influenced by uh, what has happened. Um, again, I think of even Martin Luther. Let's take this major event that's coming up, um, the Protestant Reformation. Well, part of it was driven by the incredibly sorry state of the Catholic Church at the time and the practice of indulgence selling and all that, that that he was reacting to. And that was the primary focus of the 95 Thesis. Well, if and I know that we as Protestants term it the Counter-Reformation, that the response that came after Martin Luther that kind of reformed the Catholic Church. But there were Catholic reformers or reformers before, um, you know, that that were pre- that happened before Luther, and if they had gained traction, and there had been a reformation of the Catholic Church, back to more biblical principles, back to where it was when it first got started. Who knows what would there have been any kind of reformation or what it would have right. looked like? So, um, you know, Luther was influenced by the circumstances that in the church at his time and what's mm-hmm. you know what surrounded him, and everybody's just influenced by what happened to them personally. I mean, his conversion story and, and I mean, he was a Bennett, or, yeah, he was a, um, he was a monk as well. Um, so, you know, he would never even gotten to the clergy if he hadn't had this personal conversion experience. So I, I, there's this interspersion of our own personal experiences and the bigger flow of history that mm-hmm. kind of sweeps people forward. Mm-hmm. And then it's, what, what do you do when you're being swept forward? How do you, some people are just kind of swept forward and that's what happens. Others become rocks. Yeah. I mean, they, they yeah. take a stand and make a position. Sounds like stones in the stream. Right? Sound, sounds a little bit like it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's good. Well, your book focuses on influencers in church history. Uh, what connections do you see between leadership and history? Uh, there, there certainly is a connection, and you have to always be I, – I, if I could put the modifier Christian leaders in front of it, because there's certainly leaders that have natural skill sets, um, you know, ability to analyze facts, ability to gain people's trust, uh, ability to lead, but they may not do it in a Christian perspective. And there's certainly Christians that God hasn't selected to particularly use them in a leadership uh, skill set. But when you can combine God-given talents with direction and some of these natural gifts that God's given you, I think that's um, that's where you, you see uh, leadership being developed. Um, uh, when I take a look at history, I, I never want to lose uh, face that God's will will not be thwarted. We talked about that earlier. And he'll raise up the men and women he selects to accomplish his task. So some of the people that are in the book, their leadership skills are, are evident. Others, they were just used by God. I mean, there was nothing evident in them that gave them leadership skills. So I'm, I'm gonna, I, I think I'm rambling a little bit on your question only because I don't, I don't want people to think that once you know, once you become a Christian, you're a natural leader, or if you're a natural leader, uh, you have to be a Christian. There, there is certainly a Christian leadership that God will use you in the way He does, and He empowers you for the specific tasks 
task that he gives you at that particular time. Sure. So, so maybe that's just it. I mean, you know, we influence people where we are in our time and place uh, with whatever God's given us to do. Yes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. So it you know it takes us back to stones and streams I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> it, there's a cycle here. There's so. yeah exactly. So I wanted to go back uh, specifically to, to highlight at least one of the people in this book, and it, it's one of the things that I think that struck me most as I read this book was uh, this particular uh, individual. So I'm I'm thinking about Trotter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so help me specifically. How do you pronounce her first name? Lilius. Lilius. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Lilius Trotter, you suggest this in your book, was in, instrumental in shifting Christendom from west to east. Now let's just pause there for a moment, and why don't you unpack that just a little bit. What do we mean when we talk about shifting Christendom from west to east? Why don't you tell people just generally about that? Yeah, I'll put one quick modifier. I don't know if, if I, she was one of a representative group sure. that, that shifted it, uh, those that that kind of took the Great Commission seriously mm. uh, in the later latter half of the 19th century. But um, if you think about, if you look at Christianity 200 years ago, and particularly if you look at Protestantism 200 years ago, um, you know, they, I think the statistics were less than 1% of Protestant Christians were living either in Asia or Africa or Latin or South mm. America. It mm. was a heavily European-dominated uh, religious faith. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you look at it now, two two thirds today's time, two thirds uh, Protestants, uh, confessing Protestants, live in one of those areas. So you, you've had this geographic shift from kind of a northerly direction to kind of an mm. east and west direction. So, mm. so that, and again, Lilius Trotter represents, uh, I find, an interesting case of an individual that participated in in that great, they call the great missionary outreach mm. activity, primarily of the second half of the. 19th century. So. This is, it's a fascinating uh, idea, frankly, for those of us who live in the West, specifically in North America and specifically in the United States of America, we have this tendency, and you know, I'm kind of going back to something we've already mentioned, that is that young people have a tendency to think that all of history starts with them, your wonderful mm-hmm. Peanuts mm-hmm. Com- comic strip uh, idea there. Uh, but when we talk about uh, this shift from west to east, this is huge. I mean, now we couldn't say the same thing, could we? I mean, w- what would you say the percentages might be now in terms of how many uh, Christians there are, let's say, in places like Africa or Asia or Central America or South America? Um, I, I would still say it is the, pre- the dom- predominant. I mean, certainly more than 50. Some mm. some estimates are high as two-thirds. Mm. But there, there are kind of two reasons for that. One is the growth that's incurred, particularly you know, churches and China. I mean, China had maybe three million Christians in the nineteen, you know, in nineteen hundred, and they say there may be three hundred million there now. Mm. It's a little hard to ever see because sure. you've got the churches can't, you know, most of the churches are outlawed churches. Right. Um, but uh, uh, unfortunately, another factor is the decline of professing Christians here. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a two-way street. Why does the shift occur? Well, you know, on one side, it's growing much more rapidly outside the United States, but we had that, you know, interesting survey that came out about a year ago, What for the first time, 50% of America, more than 50% of Americans are identified as nuns when it yes. comes to Christian affiliation. So yeah. it's a two-way street. And, and if, again, if you think where Protestant Christianity was in Europe, I would, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, it's mm-hmm. microcosm that very small percentage of Europeans would say they're still 
adherers to the Christian faith. So there's this geographic shift, almost based on the age of the church. Satan's kind of worked his magic in, yeah. in thwarting Christian Christian thought and growth. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is the lack of teaching of mm-hmm. history. You know, of history, of history yeah. in those places. And just for the sake of those who might be listening and wondering if Rob's talking about nuns in the Catholic Church, that's not true. <laughs> He's talking about N O N E S. Yes. Yes. And what what we mean by that? Sociologists have described the nuns as people who do not have a so-called religious affiliation, that is, they don't, they don't check a box, let's say, as being a Methodist or a Baptist or even Christian. Uh, they just don't hold any faith at all. Just to kind of fill that out a little bit for those of you thinking about habits or anything like that that we might be talking about concerning Catholic nuns. But let me take this a little bit further. If you were to prognosticate the future based on your understanding of Trotter's influence, where would you see the church in 50 to 100 years if Jesus has not returned? I realize I'm asking you to be a futurist here, and this is way outside the purview of either one of us. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about that for a moment. What we've seen in her life and the response uh, of other people like her in church history, how do you see this hat playing out from your point of view? Well, I think you've, to, the short answer is I think that trend is going to continue. I th- Which trend? I, the, the trend of a decline in first world and an increase in second and third world countries. Okay, so Christian from west state. to east. Yeah. yeah uh, I, I hate to put it this way, but the practicality of it is is that when you have very little and you've got no hope and no physical mm-hmm. possessions and all seems lost, your heart softened to the gospel mm-hmm. message. When you've sitting comfortably in North America and don't really have any threats or uh, economic needs, I mean, not everything you want, but you certainly aren't worried about day-to-day existence, um, your heart can get a little hardened. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, I think it's just a continuation. Unfortunately, I see a continuation of that trend mm-hmm. uh, unless there is a fantastic, you know, I think it would be the fourth great awakening that mm-hmm. occurs or the fourth, um, and I'd be all for that. But um, the ebb and flow seems to be pretty consistent in that way. Mm. So, um, so I, I, I don't really know if I can be optimistic about the growth of the church in America. It, it could. I mean, it, there is maybe this, the, ne- the current generation certainly doesn't seem to be as materialistically oriented. And so maybe their heart's a little bit open. But again, I think that may draw them more spiritual. They may call themselves spiritually oriented. I don't mm-hmm. know if that really, that certainly doesn't equate to the traditional Christian faith, mm. and again, the lack of understanding of the faith and the history and what the defining principles are kind of contributes to that. So I guess I just see a continuation of that trend. Okay. And, and we could really even talk about the cyclic nature of this, too, I suspect, because when we talk about historic events and over hundreds of years that there were shifts that were taking place, you know, even talking about the Church of England, let's say, for instance, mm-hmm. and the pilgrims and the Puritans wanted to leave there, come to a brand new world. So even there, at really a place and a time when most everybody would self-identify as Christians in England. Right. Yeah, and so now we have maybe the same thing taking place in a place like this. Well, here's a question for you. This just kind of pops into my mind. We're just talking, having a conversation here about this. I, I often wonder about the purpose of the United States of America and, uh, you know, over 250-plus years, uh, we've seen all kinds of things happen. And, of course, everybody's raving these days about the new president, whether you're raving in exaltation mm-hmm. or you're raving because you're not happy. 
but let's talk about the purpose of God in the United States of America for a moment and say what what has come out of America that has this eternal value that we were just talking about just a moment ago? How would you respond to that? Uh, what would you say uh, the church has has uh, has produced, for lack of a better way of saying that, um, out of American history over these 250 years for the benefit of eternity? Well, I, I do sit there and think that I will hear some people say, well, America's just 50 years behind Europe. We're just a gener- you know, we're a couple generations removed from being a, you know, agnostic about anything that has to do with faith. But I don't know. I, I think America culturally has this independent spirit where people, uh, and a democratic spirit, where, and an appreciation of a little, you know, where we are. We're proud to be Americans, and some of the attitude is, uh, you know, we are blessed. There, there is, you know, whether we think about it in, in very overt terms or we just feel it internally, the Christian faith is still fairly robust among a pretty decent segment of American population. And I think it's, it's lynched or it's integrated in with the overall culture of, of America, which is um, independent, uh, res- democratic, respectful, um, positive attitudes and that all kind of breeds to uh, a, a feeling that you know there must be some reason for that it isn't just us I mean we, we, we subliminally I think there's this feeling that we are God's blessed you know we are special God put us place for something special mm. I don't want to talk about manifest destiny and all the stuff that can go negative but yeah. Um, maybe I'm expressing more my personal feelings than the, the vast population, but I, I do really feel like we're in a very unique place. We've been uniquely blessed, and we've created a culture mm. of independence, independent enough that we're independent to think um, that, that we don't have to follow this downward spiral mm-hmm. of non-faith, and we can keep our faith. Yeah. And it's we fight, we're pretty serious about fighting to keep it, too. So. Yeah. Yeah, and there are really strong groups out there. You know, when we talk about uh, whole, let's say, whole countries or even sometimes in the case of Europe, continents changing, mm-hmm. uh, I'm with you. I don't see that happening here. I see uh, liberal and conservative splits where conservatives become much more foundational in the future. You know, let's say take PCA, uh, mm-hmm. Presbyterian Church of America, as a, as a conservative group uh, that split off from other groups that, maintain a foundation that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I see those kinds of things uh, in that same regard as you're suggesting, uh, suggesting maybe that there's a longevity to this that many don't see. Well, you know, one other unique thing I just thought of, and maybe it's the entrepreneurial spirit in America and a huge rise in parachurch organizations mm-hmm. like Cominius Institute. That's right. Where, you know, we're we're entrepreneurs, so we see a need. I'm an entrepreneur with Masse. I see That's a need. Right. I want to, you know, uh, uplift Christ- Christians. I want to, you know, give them a chance to recharge. Mm-hmm. So I create something to help them do that. You don't really see that. Because it, that's unique in America, I think, mm. this entrepreneurship. Mm. And I think that gives a vitality and a renewal to the church. Yes. Then maybe just the state, you know, church, church with a capital C, that, you know, the big denominations don't have. They don't react like it's going to come from a business environment. So it's maybe the difference between what I see in these high growth 
companies I work with now and the really big state companies I used to work with that couldn't react fast enough mm. and a lot of them are going off the path. So mm. that, that may be in, in unique to America that helps us outlast and, and uh, keep America focused on, on its sure. Christian faith. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit. I absolutely tracking with you on this. Uh, we're just sitting with a guy uh, this last week. He's 20 years of age, uh, going to a pretty prominent university here in, in Indiana. And uh, I would say that his bent is toward the entrepreneurial. But he's as a Christian young man, he has tremendous appreciation for history and understands that in order for him to be the best kind of entrepreneur, he's got to understand history mm -hmm. so that he can think about what the next thing might be. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of, I mean, there's hope there, right? <laughs> there is hope. Well, and to your point, if he has his appreciation of history, he not only sees history and where things are trending, he sees where people have made mistakes in the mm -hmm. past. And so yeah. maybe he, that's the next book, Mark. I'll integrate my business and, <laughs> and history and entrepreneurship all together. Who there, knows? There you go. Absolutely. So. I've heard you speak on business a couple times yeah. and the church and money and all those good things. That's Those are huge issues. Well, uh, give a brief sketch of uh, three to four of Trotter's outreach approaches for the gospel and maybe give some examples of where or how these approaches might be fostered in the church today. Yeah, Tr Lilius was an interesting person. She was uh, uh, from a high, wealthy uh, English family, never was married. and At a very young age, she was convicted that she um, needed to be a part of this great missionary outreach that was occurring. So... Um, I think that what the way she approached it, and, and there's certainly some parallels to Amy Carmichael, maybe a more, more well-recognized name, who was a missionary to India, uh, and they were actually close friends. They carried on correspondence for years. Um, but I think the biggest thing I saw that was a, that attracted me to Lilius Trotter when I first experienced her is what she was willing to sacrifice in the name of the Lord. I mean, she was. A well, a, on her way to being a well-noted, maybe one of the more famous women artists in her time period, there was a guy named John Ruskin who was a very close a mentor-type relationship with her. That was the art critic in Europe at the time, and he, a liberal, used the quote basically said, "I think you could be the best ever." You mm. know, it's kind of if you would just focus it. And she relegated it to a hobby, saying, "It isn't what really motivates me." So. Mm. Maybe one characteristic is this a willingness to give it all, uh, you know, not to take the comfort route. Two is willing to take a risk. I mean, you, she goes to Algiers, which it's French-owned, uh, French-occupied, when the French and the English weren't on great terms, uh, Muslim, uh, so and very anti-woman. And mm -hmm. yet she walks, goes there. She realizes within the first couple of months arriving in Algiers, that she can't live in the expatriate community and really reach the, the Muslim and pr primarily women and children that she was focused on as a ways to entree into the family. So she just decides on her own to move into the market district right in the heart of where uh, the normal men and women met every day. And she adopted dress. Um, she worked night and day for several months to learn the language. Uh, so that she can meet them where they are. So I guess maybe that's the second characteristic, tenacity being the first and flexibility being the next to, to meet people where they are. Um, and I think the third thing she, she kind of exhibited is, is an ability to um, recognize where, if, if there are key elements or key people. First, she focused on two areas which were almost in contrast, women and children, because she could have easy access to those. And then she went outside the city of Algiers where literally she would go and meet with um, 
tribal groups that were around these um, oasis. And she, because she was so unique, because most of them had never even seen a European woman, she could have access to like the tribal chiefs and she would talk to them about the Christian faith because she knew if she could convert one of those, they were a thought leader for their band of 100 or 200 individuals. So she, she, you know, she was very creative in, in how she approached them. So flexibility, creativity, uh, and tenacity. I mean, all of it, because you can apply those and do well in anything, but she seemed to do and apply them very well in outreach. To, mm. And all that, it, despite the fact that made her interesting that she had a surgery early in life and, and it didn't go well and she had kind of a poor heart. So mm. there were times when she was flat on her back for weeks and still when she got done, she left an organization that had 35 or 40 missionaries in 10 different st- wow. uh, stations, mm. you know, a- around a, uh, the city of Algeria and, and, mm. and other parts of North Africa. Mm. So. When I teach students, especially in leadership courses, MA, PhD, whatever, I, I tell them, you know, this stuff is not rocket science. And quite frankly, you don't even have to go to seminary for this. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start applying some of the principles you've suggested about this wonderful woman, uh, so, so many of us who have never uh, been a, uh, understood of, about her before, uh, certainly is something that uh, has a huge impact on all of us if we're willing to pay attention. Uh, which kind of leads me to this next question. You give good attention to women in church history, whether as leaders or those who have influenced leaders. How do you think church historians can do a better job to recognize Christian contributions from women? Well, it, you know, it, it's interesting to me that when I, I read, maybe not as excessively as you do, Mark, but I read a lot, <laughs> and, and I particularly love to read biographies, and so that's natural extension of why I wrote in this biographical fashion this church history book. But I don't really know if I need, you know, there's already 57, you know, analysis of Jonathan Edwards. Do I really need a 58th biography right. of him? When there are some fascinating men and women, but but let's concentrate on women out there mm-hmm. that have done some pretty remarkable thing, Going linking back to an earlier question, remarkable thing in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're not as visible historically to the general flow of, world histories but but from the flow of christian history they are sure um and why do you want to be a me too author mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's a challenge to anybody else and why not find some of these interesting stories and you could find research is much easier now with the internet and everything else mm-hmm. uh, and give recognition to some of these ladies because no i think that to answer your question in the front and no i don't think they've gotten the credit they do mm-hmm. Um, nothing else, take any of, I would guarantee, take almost any male leader that was married um, mm. and look at their wife and the adage of behind every great man is a greater woman probably. Mm. <laughs> you know, a focus on them. So, um, you know, recognizing the contributions, mm-hmm. um, I think there's plenty of opportunity sure. out there. Yeah. So. Well, one of the things we, I think we generally face in this culture is that uh, we've kind, we've finally come to a place, certainly not in any way that suggests we've been there and done that and we're all done now. But in, certainly we have come to a place in history, specifically in, in the United States of America in 2017, where we can say that uh, we have done a much better job, at least, of listening to, considering, being more sensitive about, um, being and, and I'll use this word in the best way that I think it can be used, tolerant of everybody else, including our other gender. 
mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you know women often get short shrift in the church uh, to some degree. But I think that's one of the things that we found in our culture generally, that and in the church culture too, that women matter and that their participation and invest investment within the church community is huge. So, you know, we see these kinds of things, I think, as a real benefit for us. And maybe in history, you know, we'll see these things go forward from there. We can only hope. So. We can only hope. I do yeah. have it. I have a daughter and seven granddaughters. So I'd be go. happy if that happens. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, as we're closing out the program here today, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave with anybody? Uh, I guess my, my hope is that I've kind of... S- set an interest to somebody. I mean, I hope I hope that there are a few people out there that now say, you know what, keep the right. Church history sounds like it's something I've neglected and I should have an interest in, mm-hmm. and that inspires people to begin to do a little bit of reading. Mm-hmm. I heard you talking in the first hour. There are lots of resources out there to introduce people to church history, Stones in the Stream just being one, but they're, I'm not prejudiced to think that's the best one out there. There's mm-hmm. certainly a lot of them. Uh, because if you have an appreciation of church history, to me, it's it's such an encouragement to your faith. Mm-hmm. You, you realize that you're not here isolated. You're part of this long s- stream of individuals. There, you know, you'll you'll hear inspiring stories. You'll be much more alive and focused in your faith. I think it helps you have an internal perspective yes. to, to to understand that. And all of that, I think, uh, this practical matter helps you lead a better life. But it, more importantly, it helps you lead a truer uh, more attentive, Christ-focused life. And mm. that would be my hope for everybody if they just do that. Mm. Well, that's really great. Uh, Rob, we're so pleased that you took the time to come and share with us today. Thanks for doing that. Oh, Mark, thank you for inviting me. I yeah. enjoyed it very much. Very good. Well, uh, you're listening to Radio Next.tv at the Cool Groove site, Warp and Woof Radio, every Wednesday from 10 till noon. Uh, next week we have a great uh, guest coming in as well, another great guest, and his name is Claude Robinson who uh, left the insurance business after 35 years and 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 the